The tests are perfect, but something can happen between a test where it's good and then something happens and all of a sudden she was tested very recently and tested negative. And then today, I guess, for some reason, she tested positive. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon, KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, and KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, and Seattle, Washington on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, But today you got me again. I'm Nicole Sandler, host of The Nicole Sandler Show, based at NicoleSandler.com. Always happy to fill in when the need arises and uh, give Brad and Desi a little time off. Although, to be honest with you, with the absurdity level in our world rising on a daily basis, as fast as the death toll is rising from the coronavirus, some days it's harder than others. (laughs) Thankfully, today... I've got a couple of amazing women to speak with and some unbelievable stories to deal with, like those Depression-era employment numbers that were released on Friday. Oh, my God. We'll speak with economist, modern monetary theory expert Stephanie Kelton, who's got a new book coming out in a few weeks, just in the nick of time. And then we'll check in with Lisa Graves. She is a former Deputy Assistant Attorney General of the United States, and she has a few choice words to share about Bill Barr's latest actions. It's got us all shaking our heads. But we'll begin, as I like to do, with a look at, well, what's happening in the news. Things at the White House seem almost normal, for the Trump administration anyway. The White House said late Sunday that Vice President Mike Pence would not change his schedule or self-quarantine after his press secretary, Katie Miller, tested positive for the coronavirus. But officials said Pence, who was tested negative, would distance himself from others. Well, Pence was at the White House on Monday as usual. On Friday, shortly after learning that Miller had tested positive, Pence continued on his scheduled trip to Iowa, where he met with four CEOs of food companies and the president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. All of them were told to remove their face masks before the meeting. Pence also did not wear a mask. Other people who had contact with Katie Miller and one of Donald Trump's valets who also tested positive 
are continuing to report for duty at the White House, too, as Trump administration officials struggle to contain the outbreak. Kevin Hassett, a top economic advisor to the president, said on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday, quote, it's scary to go to work. You think? By the way, there's no word on the status of Katie Miller's husband, Trump advisor Stephen Miller. But Pence isn't the only irresponsible one in the White House. Shortly after his press secretary tested positive on Friday, Trump was asked about it, and his comments showed that he has no clue about how any of this works. Katie, she tested uh, very good for a long period of time, and then all of a sudden today she tested positive. Uh, She hasn't come into contact with me. She spent some time with uh, the vice president. Uh, It's, uh, I believe, the press person, right? It's a press person. Uh, So uh, she tested positive out of the blue. This is why the whole concept of tests aren't necessarily great. The tests are perfect, but something can happen between a test where it's good and then something happens and all of a sudden she was tested uh, very recently and tested negative. And then today, I guess, for some reason, she tested positive. So Mike knows about it, and Mike has uh, done what he has to do. I think he is uh, on an airplane going to some faraway place. Uh, but uh, you'll be able to ask him later on. But they've taken all of the necessary precautions. Uh, I understand Mike has been tested, vice president, and he tested negative. I'll just let that sit here for a moment. After that, Trump hosted nearly 20 House Republicans at the White House on Friday to talk about rebuilding the economy amid the pandemic, and not one of them wore a mask or practiced social distancing. Photos from the meeting show the lawmakers casually mingling and talking in close range in the state dining room without masks on before the president arrives, also without a mask. Once he comes in, they sit at a large table with some space between them, but certainly not the recommended six feet. As for the economy, on Friday, the U.S. government reported the jobless rate hitting 14.7 percent in April. That's a level not seen since the Great Depression. As bad as it is for the entire population, it's even worse for women. Women make up 49% of the U.S. workforce, but held 55% of the jobs lost in April. The unemployment rate for women stands at an unprecedented 15.5%, marking the first time ever that U.S. women have faced a double-digit unemployment rate. And for Black and Hispanic women, it's worse, 16.4 and 20.2% respectively. The unemployment rate for men is 13%. For white men, it's 12.4%. America's indigenous population is also having a really rough time during this pandemic. A South Dakota Sioux tribe is refusing to end coronavirus checkpoints along roads leading through tribal land, even though the state's government has deemed them illegal. Leaders of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe say the checkpoints, which are designed to monitor and track possible coronavirus exposure, are the best tools they have to stop an outbreak. But South Dakota's governor, Christy Noem, says the checkpoints interfere with traffic on U.S. and state highways and therefore are against the law. The Cheyenne River Sioux and Ogallala Sioux tribes have both issued stay-at-home orders and curfews for their communities, even though there are no similar statewide restrictions. 
With more states inching toward resuming normal life, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington, who issues one of the leading coronavirus prediction models, has upped its projected U.S. death toll now forecasting more than 137,000 Americans will die by early August. The rise, they say, is due to more people traveling and interacting with each other. It's a consequence we're already seeing elsewhere in the world. China is resuming restrictions in some cities. And South Korea has put plans for reopening on hold. This after both countries reported new clusters of coronavirus cases. In a story that finally got the attention of the nation, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation said Sunday it was investigating an online threat against people protesting the killing of Ahmad Arbery, the 25-year-old black man, fatally shot by two white men in February. Arbery was jogging through a neighborhood in southeast Georgia when 64-year-old Gregory McMichael and his 34-year-old son Travis stopped in front of him in their pickup truck and confronted him. In a video of the killing, a shot is heard. Arbery is seen struggling with the younger McMichael, who has a shotgun. Two more shots are fired, and Arbery falls to the ground. Both of the McMichaels were finally charged with murder and aggravated assault this week after the video surfaced. By the way, the man who shot the video is now also being investigated. William Roddy Bryan, a neighbor of the accused killers, followed them in his own vehicle as they chased Arbery down the road. And finally, Sunday was Mother's Day. While many of us sent out a message on social media to or about our moms or the mothers in our lives, the president was having another Twitter tantrum. He sent out more than 100 conspiracy-minded tweets over the course of the day. Many of them targeted his predecessor, Barack Obama, and what Trump is now calling Obamagate. This after audio was leaked in which the 44th president called this administration's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, quote, absolutely chaotic disaster. The response to this global crisis has been so anemic and spotty, and uh, it would have been bad even with the best of governments. It has been an absolute chaotic disaster. Well, that's one way to describe it. An abysmal failure is another. Oh, we could come up with all kinds of descriptions. Uh, maybe we'll do that another time. For now, we'll take a brief time out and come back on the other side with Stephanie Kelton. With the job numbers that came out on Friday, the D word has replaced the R word in our lexicon. Is it a recession? Is it a depression? Where do we go from here? We'll check in with Stephanie Kelton next. Don't go away. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. 
We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. Once I built a railroad I made it run, made it race against time. Once I built a railroad, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host for another edition of the Bradcast. Like most Americans living today, I wasn't around during the Great Depression. But it certainly feels like we're headed that way again. Thankfully, one of the best economic minds out there today was willing to join us to explain what's happening. I'm so happy to be able to welcome Stephanie Kelton back to the show. Stephanie is an economist uh, and, and an educator. She's currently a professor at Stony Brook University, was formerly a professor at University of Missouri, Kansas City. She's served as an advisor to Bernie Sanders' 2016 presidential campaign, and her new book, is coming out uh, soon, I think next month. It's called The Deficit Myth, Modern Monetary Theory and the Birth of the People's Economy. Stephanie Kelton, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. When is the book officially out? June 9th. June 9th. So we're getting there, getting close. <laughs> yep. Seems like it's taken forever, but we're almost there. Okay. And, and the timing is, is perfect because I would think right now a lot of people are even more curious about modern monetary theory than before. Before we get into that, I reached out to you because Friday we watched the new job numbers come in for April. The U.S. economy lost 20.5 million jobs last month. The unemployment rate went from 4.4% to 14.7% the highest since 1939 when they started keeping track of these things. Are we officially in a depression? Well, I mean, there's not really a universally agreed upon definition, but I think by most reasonable accounts, um, this has risen to historic standards that look very much like uh, depression level um, unemployment numbers. So, Eventually, I'm sure we will reach the point where people um, begin to describe the situation that we're in in terms of the economy as a depression. It's frightening. I mean, when you saw those numbers, and, and we were prepared for them. I mean, in fact, they were bracing us for an even higher. They said the unemployment rate could be up as high as 16%. It was only 14.7. But on Face the Nation this weekend, uh, Kevin Hassett, who's a White House economic advisor, said he thinks the unemployment rate will rise to north of 20% next month, because this only measured like halfway through April, right? Yeah, exactly. So... Um, you know, the, the estimates vary, of course, but um, there are people out there who have warned that we could see unemployment, official unemployment figures rise above 30 percent. I think former Fed chairperson uh, Janet Yellen has suggested that, you know, that's a that's a reasonable um, forecast to be thinking about right now. So, in other words, levels of unemployment that exceed what we experienced in the Great Depression, which was about 25% or one in four uh, people out of the um, unemployed. Right. And, and before this happened, before we got hit with the coronavirus pandemic, 
the employment picture was already kind of shaky because of new technology and artificial intelligence and consolidation. I mean, I've worked my entire career in the broadcasting industry. We've seen massive job losses over the last decade or so due to technology, due to the consolidation of big broadcasting companies. So we were already hurting. And then for this to happen and all these massive job losses, this is these are scary times. When you look at these numbers as an economist, Stephanie, does it freak you out? Oh, no question. I mean, you, the the idea that 20 plus million people uh, lost jobs in a single month is jarring for any economist. Uh, there's absolutely no question that this is, you know, on a on an order of magnitude beyond what um, we think about. We think about, you know, ways to respond in terms of economic policy, the macroeconomic policy response. You know, we all have these textbooks. We teach our students um, if something happens in the economy to create uh, a downturn, a slowdown in the, um, you know, in the economy, there are things that policymakers can do using fiscal and monetary policy. But these are sort of tinkering at the margins. You know, there's nothing that you can turn to the page in the textbook that tells you how to handle 20 million people losing their jobs in a single month. So, yes. And, and you know, your point about uh, where we were prior to this, of course, you know, Donald Trump would would tell you that we had the greatest economy in the history of the universe, right. that he was the greatest jobs president God ever created. Uh, the official unemployment rate was down around three and a half percent. But, you know, the thing is that most of the new jobs that were created since the last crisis, remember the 2008 financial crisis and the Great Recession, took us 76 months to claw fully our way back to where we erased all of the job losses and started creating additional net new jobs. So um, that was a very long and slow economic recovery. But as you point out, the jobs that were created were overwhelmingly low hour and low wage jobs. So we didn't bring back the higher paying, better jobs that were lost in the last recession. We brought back jobs, but we replaced them with lower paying, lower wage, uh, lower hours jobs. So you're right to say it wasn't you know, the be all and end all uh, labor market that President Trump would have had us believe. Right. And but he keeps repeating those uh, numbers and the, those claims. In fact, he went on uh, last week to say, I built the best economy in the history of the world um, just to, you know, um, <laughs> drive home. He built nothing. Right. This was building on the Obama administration's turning around of the disastrous economy left by the Bush administration. When Obama took office, we were losing, what, 900,000 jobs a month or something ridiculous like that. And and we've been, we had been until last month on a steady 11-year climb with the economy getting better and better, right? So Trump built on the Obama administration's turnaround of the economy. Am I overstating that? Well, no, not Entirely. But again, those jobs that we did bring back in most instances were not as good as the jobs mm -hmm. that had been mm -hmm. lost. So mm -hmm. we, I don't want to give five stars to, you know, the the last 10 years or so either. But you're absolutely right to say that, you know, Donald Trump doesn't get to take credit for a, a long term trajectory of steady but fairly low economic growth and steady improvement in uh, in the labor market. 
Right. But, so he'll say whatever he's going to say. We've learned that every time he opens his mouth, lies come out and we can't trust what he says. Again, we didn't see jobs come back with higher salaries. We saw some numbers come back. But again, I'm, I'm pointing out Trump saying, I built the best economy in, in the history of the world. And that simply is just not true. No, he and- didn't totally destroy it. Uh, and he... You know, I mean, what did he do? What is the major legislative accomplishment from this administration over the last three years? What is it? Big tax cut for billionaires. It's the tax cuts that were pushed through in December of 2017. That is the major legislative accomplishment. You said it exactly correctly that we did big tax breaks for corporations on the corporate income tax side. And when it came to the personal income tax, what you and I uh, pay, the benefits went disproportionately to the people who least needed the help. 83% of the benefits went to people in the top 1% of the income distribution. So, you know, he did that. We got some deregulation and then he did the tariffs. And so, you know, to the extent that he counterbalanced some of the harmful impacts that his tariffs caused with a little bit of a break for people in the bottom 99 percent, you know, where 17 percent of the benefits went to people in the bottom 99 percent, he didn't totally wreck everything. But he absolutely did not and could not possibly credibly take credit for uh, a booming, thriving um, U.S. economy, economy right. administration. Now, now, one thing, Stephanie, that's happened since Trump took office is uh, the stock market. Um, and, and some pundits, some people in the administration, Trump included, will point to the stock market to say, look how great the stock market's doing. That just proves that our economy is doing so well. Well, there are most of Americans, myself included, don't have any money invested in the stock market. And just because the stock market's doing well doesn't mean the economy is doing well for us. What kind of an indicator is the stock market on the overall health of the economy? Well, you know, sometimes there is a correlation that makes some sense. Mm -hmm. You see a healthy, growing economy, um, you see workers doing better, and you can see the stock market improving alongside that sort of thing. Okay, it happened uh, in the last uh, four years or so of the Clinton administration. But for the most part, there's a large disconnect between these two things, right? Where um, what what is perceived as uh, good for the stock market can actually be quite bad for the working people of this country. So in other words, you saw the job numbers, Mm -hmm. uh, the unemployment rate the other day, you said 20.5 million people lost jobs. And what did the market do that day? It went up. It went up. It went up. Um, So look, I think that a lot of what we are seeing with uh, respect to the stock market today is that investors feel very confident that the Federal Reserve is going to pull out all the stops, do whatever it takes to protect big corporations, to protect investors, to protect the financial system. And that is building confidence in terms of investors who aren't fleeing the stock market in terror because they feel like the Fed has their back. And they do. 
Right. And in fact, you know, for those of us who are wondering why the stock market is still relatively doing well, it's down, we're recording this 10 o'clock Monday morning, down 221 now. It's been down around 200 points since it opened about a half hour ago. Um, But but it's, I mean, uh, over 24,000. And for those of us wondering how, the Fed has been injecting record amounts of money to keep it going, haven't they? Well, Yes. And you also, I think, have to ask, what is the alternative? Mm-hmm. I mean, we just mm-hmm. stepped back. The Fed just stepped back and, you know, didn't have these lending facilities and didn't stand ready to provide liquidity and support businesses in this moment. Then we would just start seeing a cascading wave of failures across, you know, the um, the corporate sector, business community. And we'd have an even worse unemployment picture. So we're in a situation where, um to a very large and real extent, protecting some of these firms and municipalities and backstopping others uh, indirectly does help to support jobs. It's just that the Fed is, you know, one institution, the Fed can lend, it can't spend. And what we really need is much, much more support coming from the fiscal side, coming from Congress, because as I said, the Fed can lend, it can't spend. And oh. what we need is not to layer more debt, right? More lending means more debt. We need Congress to step up and um, protect jobs and shore up the economy using fiscal policy. Right. And now we learn that the House is working on the next uh, round of, of stimulus. They have like a $1.2 trillion package that they want to introduce. And when I say the House, I mean the Democrats leading the House. Republicans, though, are starting to do their old, oh, no, too expensive. We can't spend the money. Um, here we are in the U.S. We we all, most of us, have gotten our $1,200, whatever they want to call it, stimulus check. Um, and those who haven't will get it shortly. But I, I've been talking to people all over the world. I've been doing this segment called Quarantine Calling, where I check in with people in different countries. And every other country I've spoken to, people are getting real serious financial help from the government, whether it's Canada or the UK or Denmark or Norway. They're getting, in some places, a portion, uh, 80, 90 percent of their salary every month. Canada, people are getting $2,000 a month. Uh, we got a paltry one-time payment of $1,200. That's not helping the average person who's hurting right now, is it? Well, it's certainly not helping enough uh, for a lot of people. You know, um, you're right. There are countries that committed early on to recurring payments rather than this one-off, a one-time $1,200 check. I call it stimulus. I don't call it <laughs> stimulus because I think the idea is basically to keep people to keep us staying in place just Mm -hmm. to try to contain it and hold it all together. Um, You know, what are people mostly doing with that money? Well, if you didn't need it, because a lot of people will will say, look, I didn't actually need it. I still have my job. My income is uh, no face, no disruption in my income. I can pay my rent and I'm not, you know, I so maybe these people will hold on to it, save it for a little while. A lot of people are using it to buy groceries mm-hmm. and pay some recurring expenses, pay the utility bill, make a rent payment. But you can't stretch $1,200 very far in this economy. Uh, you know, you can buy a few groceries and maybe cover, maybe cover a month of rent. Um, and then it runs out. Right. So the, the real thing that Congress did, which was very good, was the expansion of unemployment insurance and including non-traditional workers, allowing gig workers and others 
to apply for and get unemployment compensation. And then that extra $600 a week that the federal government is kicking in, it has actually been um, very, very important. And it has protected incomes. And in some cases, actually in many cases, the frontline low-income workers who were the earliest to lose jobs are um, see, have seen their incomes protected in total, right? And in many cases, they're actually bringing in a little bit more now than they were making in their very low-wage jobs uh, that they were working when they were employed. So, But the problem is, of course, that's going to run out. Right. Now, let's bring modern monetary theory into this, right? What? How would an administration who operated under a uh, monetary policy such as modern monetary theory differ from what this administration is doing? Well, I think that uh, one of the main things is that you don't place arbitrary caps on your um, fiscal response because you know, look look at the Small Business Administration, the so-called Paycheck Protection Program, mm-hmm. right? That was in the CARES Act. That was that um, third piece of legislation that Congress passed, the $2.2 trillion. So that's the biggest one we've seen so far. And that was designed to keep workers attached to their employers, to keep them on payroll. And Congress said, okay, we'll stick a certain number on this. We'll call it, I think it was $348 billion or so. Okay. And that's the program. Well, that quickly ran out, right? So in one of the answers to your question is these caps are a problem. And the reason that we put caps on things is to contain the amount of spending that we're willing to do. And if you were working from an MMT perspective, you would say, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Put the money piece aside, because that's the easy part. We can Mm -hmm. always appropriate funding in whatever size we deem necessary to handle the problem we're trying to solve. So MMT would ask us to figure out what the problem is and design the policy to address the problem. If it's keeping people attached to their employers on payroll so they don't become unemployed, then you don't set up all of these arbitrary hoops. You run it through banks who were ill-prepared. We just didn't execute well. And so I think you know, recognizing that you have to stand ready to provide whatever funding is necessary to solve the problems that you're trying to solve without placing arbitrary restrictions on the size of the amount of money that can be borrowed, too many restrictions on how that money had to be used. A lot of employers didn't think that they uh, could keep workers on payroll. A lot of employers said, wait, you're requiring me to spend 75% of the money on payroll, but actually my payroll costs are low. It's my rent and my utilities that are high because I'm in a high rent district or something like that. So that's one of the problems. And if you were all of a sudden, you know, Steven Mnuchin called you in and said, all right, Stephanie Kelton, we need a different mindset here. We need a different way of looking at things. What would your advice be? How would you get us through this mess? Well, look, I think that it's almost impossible to go too big. There are going to be, um, you know, inefficiencies there are going to be people who get money who in retrospect, you think, well, we shouldn't have made that loan or we shouldn't have um, provided that form of assistance. But, you know, in some ways, Nicole, it's almost like you wish you could just have everybody, uh, you know, take an oath and say under penalty of perjury and and uh, fraud and prosecution and so forth, I am going to log into this website 
I'm going to answer this series of questions. There are countries have, that have rolled out something like this, where you know you answer six or seven questions, and you say, "Are you facing hardship? Yes or no?" Yeah, mm -hmm. you click the button. What are your recurring expenses? You click the button. How much income, cash flow, do you currently have? You click the button. What is your estimated shortfall in terms of necessary recurring expenses? You say, my current uh, recurring shortfall is $1,700 a month, $2,300 a month, $3,500, whatever it is. And you click the next button, and that's the disbursement that comes. Wow. Okay? Three days from now, you've got that money in your, in your paycheck. You say, I'm protecting my... Um, workers, I'm keeping them on payroll, I'm paying my utilities, none of this, you know, I was also thinking about buying a car, so I want to factor that in. No, no, no. This is for, you know, necessary recurring expenses to uh, allow companies, businesses, small businesses in particular, to avoid shuttering, right, to avoid going under, mm -hmm. to keep their workers protected, to keep families protected so that they don't get evicted from their apartments, so that they don't end up losing their homes, so that their credit is not permanently impaired by this. I mean, that's the sort of big, big time uh, intervention that could hold the whole thing together. Because you know what? We have the real economy, and then we have the financial side of everything. We ought to be able to pause the real economy without having everything completely fall apart. And the reason that things start to completely fall apart is because of the financial piece. It's that chain of interconnected um, payment commitments, debt, right? You got to pay your rent. You got to pay your utilities. You have a car payment. You have this. You miss one of those. And then there's someone on the other side, a lender who doesn't receive a payment they were counting on, who mm -hmm. then can't turn around and meet their payments. So you got to figure out where you need to press on the financial chain to alleviate the strain that allows everything to kind of stay together until we're through this thing. It is frightening. And in your lifetime, this is this is what you do. You're an economist. You deal with this on a daily basis. Have you ever thought we'd get to a point where we're seeing numbers like this and an outlook like this? Well, no, I mean, not to this scale. But look, one of the things that um, my colleagues and I, the MMT academic economists who have been, you know, thinking a lot about ways to have government policy respond to build a more resilient economy for more than 20 years, we've been um, urging lawmakers to think about adopting a, a jobs program. We call it a federal job guarantee or public service employment. You could say we want to build a care force. I mean, I don't care really how you describe it, but the idea is that you need a public option in the labor market. We needed to have something that was in place and capable of immediately absorbing people as they became unemployed. Well, as their uh, employers let them go or furloughed them, laid them off, they could immediately transition into another form of employment. Instead of becoming unemployed, the government hires them, they remain employed, they have benefits, they're protected, their incomes are protected through this process. And it's a program that should be in place in good times and in bad. And if all of a sudden 20 million people are without work, that program is there and you immediately hire those 20 million people into the program. You replace 
um, much or in some cases all of the lost income, depending on what they were making before. They keep their health care because mm -hmm. the benefits mm -hmm. uh, are part of the package and so forth. So, you know, we weren't thinking, wow, this is a program that's going to be important when we lose 20 million jobs in a month. But we were thinking that um, capitalist economies go through a business cycle. And there are never enough jobs, not even in the best of times, for everyone who wants employment but can't find it anywhere else in the economy. There ought to be an option even in the best of times. But in the worst of times, when the bottom is falling out and millions of people are losing jobs, there should be a program that can respond automatically to absorb these people, provide incomes, maintain some benefits. And so that's something we've been working on for a really long time. I'm hoping that uh, a Democratic administration will come in in January and and fix things. Has anyone in the Biden campaign reached out to you by any chance? Well, I'm not going to answer that <laughs> no. question exactly okay. yet. Um, oh, good. All right. Well, that's all I'm going to say right now. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll leave it there, and I'll take that as a bit of um, uh, good news, uh, hopefully, to be coming soon. So um, I, I've kept you on a while. I, I, let's talk about the book, The Deficit Myth. It comes out in just about three weeks, or a little less than a month. And it tells about modern monetary theory. I guess this is a really good time for this book to come out, huh? You know, it's funny. I, uh, I broke my arm a couple of years ago. I, I fractured my wrist and I had to have surgery and I had a plate and I had all this physical therapy. And it was a long time before I could actually turn my hand from mm. my palm being up to my palm being down, which meant I, it took a long time before I could type again um, it, with any, you know, real speed. So it delayed the book quite a bit. And now, you know, I said to my husband a couple months ago, thank God I broke my arm. You know, because <laughs> I think the timing really, really is it would it would be difficult to have um, intentionally timed the release of the book any better, I think, um, because on the one hand, you know, governments around the world are increasing spending without increasing taxes. In other words, deficit spending right. is happening all over the world on a huge scale. And you might think, oh, well, everybody's over the deficit myth because governments are just, you know, using deficits to address the weak economy and the health pandemic and so forth. But clearly you're already hearing, right, this drumbeat around, oh, my God, the deficits have gotten so big and the debt is increasing. And so we're going to have to think about cutting Social Security mm. or Medicare or cutting budgets or, you know, the austerity um, drumbeat has already started. And that's really what this book is about. This book is designed chapter by chapter to help empower, you know, regular people. This is not aimed at economists. This is there are no um, I don't think there are any numbers in the book. There, huh. there are no models. There's no math. It's a book that, you know, it's meant to be um, accessible to anyone with a, you know, reading comprehension. <laughs> this mm -hmm. is about the only requirement. Um, but I really want to be able to empower people. So when we start hearing our uh, politicians talk about withdrawing fiscal support prematurely, which is what happened in the last crisis, right? Right. We yeah. withdrew fiscal support prematurely because everyone started to panic about deficits and debt. Mm -hmm. And that held back the recovery that cost us in terms of jobs. It cost people their homes. It cost people their livelihoods. We had a much more anemic 
uh, and slow recovery than we could have had if we'd remained, you know, vigorous in terms of the use of fiscal policy. So I want this book to try to provide, you know, some kind of a protective layer against this, um, in a sense, this virus of deficit hysteria that inevitably um, invades us whenever we see deficits increasing. Great. Uh, and it, it's so needed right now. And again, this is what's starting to come with this next, the fifth round of, of stimulus or whatever we want to call it, with Republicans saying, oh, no, we're waiting. And Trump saying, oh, no, I'm not signing anything unless there's a payroll tax cut. Well, a payroll tax cut's not going to help anyone who's not working. Right. I mean, it, it just uh, to me makes no sense. Then again, I'm the layman here. Well, you're right. Uh, the payroll tax is uniquely beneficial to people who are still on payroll. Right. So that 6.2% of your paycheck that gets withheld every single month for Social Security and another 1.45 for Medicare, if that was done away with, it is tantamount to a seven point, you know, nearly an 8% increase in your take home pay. That helps you if, uh, if you're on payroll. Um, but what does it do to Medicare and Social Security? And it does nothing to help all the people who are not on payroll anymore. Well, here's the thing. So I have a chapter in my book, chapter six. And if, um, if the Democrats understood, I think, uh, what I argue in chapter six, the idea of a payroll tax cut wouldn't be so threatening. Because the reason that many Democrats recoil at the idea of a payroll tax cut is precisely what you just said. They think that it undermines the security, the solvency of Social Security. And what I explain in this chapter is that um, we can protect Social Security. The federal government can go on making every payment that it has promised to future retirees, their beneficiaries and the disabled into the indefinite future with or without a trust fund that has a balance in it with or without sufficient payroll tax uh, withholdings. That's the point that I make in that chapter. And as long as Democrats continue to believe that the only way that Social Security survives is with enough payroll tax revenue and by shoring up trust funds and so forth, then I think the program is in real danger. Hmm. Um, you got to be able to fight back on stronger grounds. And that's what chapter six of the book is all about. I can't wait to read it. The Deficit Myth is out on June 9th. It is available for pre-order at Amazon and all those other places. I'll put a link on the blog at NicoleSandler.com and Bradblog.com, uh, where today's show is posted so you can pre-order it. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you think is important to tell people right now as we're all kind of freaking out, looking at these unemployment numbers, hearing, you know, recession, depression, all these uh, frightening terms thrown around? Anything I, I didn't touch on? You know, I would say one thing, and that is the urgent need to get aid to state and local governments. Mm -hmm. um, that should have been in, it absolutely should have been in the third spending bill, the CARES package, right. the Democrats said, no, 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 don't worry. Uh, we'll get it next time. Uh, we're not done here. Those were the assurances that we were given when it didn't end up in that piece of legislation. And now Republicans are kind of starting to walk away, say, well, we're not in a real hurry to come back and do more. We want to sit back and wait and see how things play out. 
And we know how things are going to play out because, you know, if you're watching, if you're listening to what governors all over this country and mayors all over this country are telling you, they are telling you that the cuts are going to be absolutely brutal if they are forced into a position because their revenues are collapsing around them. Right. And states and municipal governments, unlike the federal government, are absolutely dependent upon revenue in order to operate. They can't run deficits the way the federal right. government can. Right. And so they are begging. They are making it clear in no uncertain terms, if this money is not forthcoming, you are going to see cuts to police, fire, teachers, I mean, social services, it is going to be absolutely horrific. And if you think about, you know, 20 million job losses plus in April, what we're going to face when state and local governments all turn themselves into little Herbert Hoovers Mm. and start right with the austerity at the state level, uh, it is just going to make an already catastrophically bad jobs picture and economic picture that much worse. Wow. I think the pressure has to be brought to bear. The Democrats have to stay firm on this, use whatever leverage they might have left, um, and this time, you know, use it effectively to um, extract uh, concessions and get this in the next piece of legislation, or we are in real trouble. Well, that's uh, important information. Thank you for that. Stephanie Kelton, again, the book, The Deficit Myth, hits stores on the 9th of June. Pre-order it now. I can't wait to read it because, I, I, again, I'm, you know, I'm your average person who knows how to spend money. And that's, that's about it. So in these days, don't have much to spend. So Stephanie Kelton, thank you for being a voice of reason. And thank you for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thanks always, Nicole. Take care of yourself. You too. Stephanie Kelton, she is a national treasure. Let's hope that the Biden folks have reached out to her. I'll take her silence on the question as a good omen. All right, time for a quick break. And on the other side, Bill Barr. What? We'll check out his latest outrage with a former Deputy Assistant Attorney General of the United States. Her name is Lisa Graves. She's coming up next. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host today on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Broken lines, broken strings, broken threads, broken springs, broken idols, broken heads, people sleeping in broken beds. Ain't no use driving, ain't no use joking. Everything is broken. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show, filling in today for Brad and Desi. So Lisa Graves has worked in all three branches of the federal government. At the Department of Justice during the Clinton administration, Lisa rose to Deputy Assistant Attorney General under Janet Reno. And she's certainly one of my favorite people to hear from when all hell breaks loose in the Justice Department. And it seems this has happened again. 
Last week, Attorney General William Barr announced that the Department of Justice would drop the charges against Trump's former national security advisor, Michael Flynn. This made no sense to me. I mean, he pleaded guilty, for God's sake. And he lied to the FBI. So I reached out to Lisa Graves to ask her if she could please explain to us what had just happened. I can. It really is astonishing. And it it underscores just how political and partisan um, Barr, William Barr, has been um, in the role of attorney general. Um, What happened was that the Justice Department dismissed the charges against Michael Flynn, who had pleaded guilty to um, making false statements uh, to the United States government about a number of things. But um, basically, you have a situation in which you have a person who has pleaded guilty. He then cooperated with the prosecutors with the investigation into others, uh, and he was awaiting sentencing. And then he changed lawyers and decided to try to withdraw his guilty plea. There was a lot of speculation about whether Donald Trump would pardon him anyway, since he has pardoned other friends and allies who've engaged in criminal conduct like Flynn has, or, or at least has pleaded guilty to. But here you have the Justice Department, you know, really acting in an extraordinary way to set aside evidence and a guilty plea by someone. I, I don't know whether there's much precedent for this. There certainly isn't any precedent for it in this type of case where you have uh, someone who was clearly engaged in wrongdoing. If you look at the interview, he was given opportunities, uh, obviously, to tell the truth. The idea that he was entrapped into not telling the truth is pretty absurd. Mm -hmm. One of the most basic um, parts of the criminal code, in fact, the very first charge in the United States Federal Criminal Code is 18 U.S.C. 1001, which is about lying to federal officers. And uh, Michael Flynn certainly would have understood those rules. He had previously um, held positions in the United States government. He's held positions involving a security clearance. So he knows full well that he cannot lie to federal officers who are uh, interviewing him. And he did. He plainly did. Uh, He lied uh, to them, and he ultimately pled guilty to that. And now he wants to get out of those charges, and, uh, and Trump has wanted to get out of those charges. And now Bill Barr has, again used the Justice Department to aid the political agenda of this president and attempted to exonerate someone like Michael Flynn, who is who is most certainly a liar. It's astounding. Did Bill Barr basically say that uh, uh, now it's okay to lie to the FBI? It's okay for a government official, for a the national security advisor to lie to the FBI? Well, it certainly seems that he's indicated that it's okay for a friend of Donald Trump to lie to the FBI. Wow. Um, you know, I don't think that any, any other citizen of the United States would get away with that. Um, and, uh, and as you point out, this isn't just any person um, doing the lying. This is a person who at the time had been tapped by Trump to be the leader on national security issues for our nation. And he lied to the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And so it's particularly egregious because this is um, the position that he was uh, provided or, or, you know, that Trump was putting him into was a position of the highest amount of trust in our country. And he displayed the lowest level of ability to follow that trust by lying to our uh, to the, the federal law enforcement agency, uh, uh, the FBI in this case. And so um, I don't think it's a general rule for anyone to take license and go and lie to the FBI, but certainly 
Bill Barr has shown his willingness to be nothing little more than just uh, a hack who is willing to um, do the bidding of Donald Trump in trying to save uh, Trump's friends from the criminal consequences of their of their criminal behavior. In this case, criminal behavior that um, that Michael Flynn uh, confessed to in court. Right. I've got to think this is unprecedented. Well, you know, the, the claims made by Flynn's attorney uh, are pretty astonishing. One of the claims is that he didn't have adequate representation when he was previously represented by Covington Burling, one of the biggest, most widely uh, respected firms, you know, handling those sorts of cases in the country. Um, that, you know, a pretty astonishing claim uh, on its face. Um, and then uh, they have some notes from one of the uh, investigators talking about whether um, you know, in this case, whether they should pursue uh, one, one charge or another charge or let him lie if he was going to lie. And they try to claim that that's entrapment. That's not entrapment. Um, the fact is, is that um, is that Michael Flynn was asked specific and direct questions, and he intentionally chose to lie to those direct questions. That's not entrapment in any sense of the word, but that's the sort of spin being put out there by uh, Trump's allies to try to justify this. The other claim uh, that that has been made is that the whole predicate for this investigation uh, was flawed. That's part of what Bill Barr is trying to do is to try to, in, a, in essence, after the fact, exonerate Donald Trump and the people around him for their criminal or you know allegedly criminal misconduct uh, because he's a servant to this uh, to this political agenda of Donald Trump and not at all, in my view, a servant to the law of the land. Uh, Bill Barr should never have been confirmed to be the Attorney General of the United States. He previously demonstrated when he was Attorney General the last time around that he was willing to help with whitewashing uh, criminal conduct. Uh, he's done it again. That's, I'm sure, precisely why he was hired. Uh, he already had done his little audition for Donald Trump in his memo attacking the Mueller investigation, and he's been rewarded with it with this position at the top of the Justice Department, and he's brought nothing but dishonor and disrepute to the department that I previously worked for. Yeah, it's got to be really disturbing to you, as it is for other members, former members of the Department of Justice, other officials. I've seen some on TV all displaying uh, different levels of of shock and dismay. I mean, this is like the the end of the the rule of law, it seems. And then Bill Barr sat for an interview with someone at CBS. I'm just going to play a little bit of it, but I don't know. Again, I'm not a I'm not a lawyer. I've never been in the legal profession, but even I know that this stuff is just wrong. So here, here's some of what he said. Our duty, we think, uh, is to dismiss the case. A crime cannot be established here. They did not have a basis for a counterintelligence investigation against Flynn at that stage. Does the fact remain that he lied? Well, you know, people sometimes plead to things uh, that turn out not to be crimes. What should Americans take away from your actions in the Flynn case today? I want to make sure uh, that we restore confidence in the system. There's only one standard oh of justice. Oh, my God. Are you doing the Okay, I, that's enough. I mean, he wants to restore. <laughs> I, it's opposite world. Did, did he say anything there that made sense? No, I mean, it really is a far as capacity to spin. It's not unparalleled, but he really... Um, you know, is is very accustomed to making such bald faced, you know, bald facedly wrong statements. Uh, uh, quite common. We've seen it from him before. This idea that this is an action to restore confidence in the Justice Department is actually uh, really designed to restore confidence by one person in the Justice Department, and that one person is Donald Trump. 
who has been the person that that Bill Barr has has made clear he served, that he really served versus the actual rule of law in this country. This is a slap in the face to the prosecutors, to the investigators who are involved in this case. And the idea that someone can plead guilty to something that isn't a crime, in this case, it, it, it certainly was a crime. It was a crime for Flynn to lie to those investigators. And as I said, you know, if you read the transcript, it's very plain what he lied about. And he knew that he was lying about it at the time. Uh, and he admitted to lying about it at the time. And so this is, you know, really after the fact, an after the fact effort to rationalize this. The other part of that interview, Nicole, as I'm sure you saw, was uh, when, they, when the reporter asked him about, you know, how history would judge yes. him. He, he responded. History this, is you know, written by the winners. Yeah. Uh. So cavalier. <laughs> so cavalier about the truth. Yeah, it's extraordinary. That is Lisa Graves, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General of the United States. On Monday afternoon, we learned that nearly 2,000 former DOJ officials, including Lisa, have signed on to a letter calling on Attorney General Bill Barr to resign over his, quote, political interference in the Mike Flynn case. The letter saying in part, quote, We continue to believe that it would be best for the integrity of the Justice Department and for our democracy for Attorney General Barr to step aside. In the meantime, we call on Congress to hold the Attorney General accountable. The former officials are also urging the House Judiciary Committee to, quote, demand that Barr answer for his abuses of power. The letter reading, quote, we also call upon Congress to formally censure Attorney General Barr for his repeated assaults on the rule of law in doing the president's personal bidding rather than acting in the public interest. Our democracy depends on a Department of Justice that acts as an independent arbiter of equal justice, not as an arm of the president's political apparatus. And the pushback on Barr's action didn't end with that letter. In the Sunday New York Times was an op-ed from Mary B. McCord. She's the former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice. And she wrote that Bill Barr's motion to drop the charges against Flynn cites more than 25 times the FBI's report of an interview with her from July of 2017. Of it, she wrote... Quote, but the report of my interview is no support for Mr. Barr's dismissal of the Flynn case. It does not suggest that the FBI had no counterintelligence reason for investigating Mr. Flynn. It does not suggest that the FBI's interview of Mr. Flynn, which led to the false statements charge, was unlawful or unjustified. It does not support that Mr. Flynn's false statements were not material. And it does not support the Justice Department's assertion that the continued prosecution of the case against Mr. Flynn, who pleaded guilty to knowingly making material false statements to the FBI, quote, would not serve the interests of justice, end quote. Mary McCord then ended her piece saying, in short, the report of my interview does not anywhere suggest that the FBI's interview of Mr. Flynn was unconstitutional, unlawful, or not tethered to any legitimate counterintelligence purpose. Oh, what a tangled web we're living in, thanks to the Trump administration. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the broadcast. I'm Nicole Sandler. Thank you so much for joining me. And let me invite you to my place. My home base is NicoleSandler.com. That's where you can find my podcast. There's no paywall. Donations are voluntary, but it's what pays my salary. 
but there's also what's news segments, writing samples, interviews from my music radio days, and so much more. So check it out, NicoleSandler.com. Feel free to explore. Hours worth of fun and entertainment there. All right, with that, Brad and Desi will return tomorrow for another scintillating episode of the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, echoing Brad and saying, good luck, world. Oh, 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 oh